It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Tom McNamara has been a fixture in scouting sections around baseball for more than 25 years, always on the lookout for talent. He worked with the Brewers as an area scout, where he signed Prince Fielder. He's been a pro scout with both the Padres and Mariners, spending most of his career with Seattle, the same organization that gave him a chance as an undrafted free agent back in 1988. In his eight seasons as the Mariners' amateur scouting director, McNamara oversaw drafts that produced 21 big league players, including Kyle Seeger, James Paxton, Chris Taylor, and Edwin Diaz, among others. I had a chance to sit down with McNamara at the Mariners' spring facility in Peoria, Arizona, before camps shut down due to the coronavirus pandemic. We discussed the art of scouting, the inexact science of the amateur draft, the chaotic nature of a draft room, and much more. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Mariners' special assistant to the GM, Tom McNamara. But first, a word from our presenting sponsor, Roman. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. Tom, you grew up in Pearl River, New York, about 30 miles from Yankee Stadium and Shea Stadium, which was your team. Yankees growing up. That uh, Was baseball always your, your first love? No doubt. Since Little League, uh, I was a Bobby Mercer fan. That was my hero growing up. Used to walk around the house with the Yankee uniform, number one. So, And I grew up in a house of Met fans. Me and my dad were Yankee fans. Everybody else were Met fans. Come from a family of eight. So a lot of Met fans. I was going to say, that's a, you're outnumbered pretty big there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you played baseball at Dominican College, which is just a few miles from your hometown. Yeah. Yep. Set a New York State college record, 71 stolen bases. Pretty yeah. impressive, 1988. Did you, as a college player, even in a smaller college, have aspirations of playing professionally? Definitely. Uh, I was a mediocre high school player, Albertus Magnus in Rockland County. I graduated in 1983. I went to a junior college for one year, Rockland Community. And I think playing there, I played with a lot of good players that were pretty good, pretty high draft picks. And then playing in the summer, in the summer collegiate leagues, I played with guys like Mo Vaughn and John Valentin. And playing with that type of competition, just you automatically get better. And then I started to believe I had a chance to sign. I could run. 
uh, everybody in my family could run uh, from my dad down. And I got faster as I went to college. So that was my game, getting on base, stealing bases. Not much in the power department, but uh, I knew my strengths and weaknesses, and I was lucky, fortunate enough to get a chance to play pro ball with the Mariners. Right, you signed with the Mariners yeah. as a non-drafted free agent yeah. in 88. Played 50 games with the yeah. Bellingham Mariners in the Northwest League. Yeah. What made you decide to, to stop the playing career? I, unfortunately, I didn't make that decision. <laughs> but, um, a few people do, right? Right, and uh, I got released in 89, the, spring, the last, last two days of spring training. Had some shoulder issues and uh, tried to play through it, which was a mistake. If I had to do it again, I would have, you know, looked for help. And um, father time was starting to catch up, and I got back to Pearl River, and it was time to get a real job. Um, and you know, like most guys from Pearl River, I was thinking fireman or New York City cop. My dad was a New York City fireman, and uh, I was fortunate enough to meet the right people to get me into scouting. Um, it was meant to be. You, you actually started out coaching. Yeah, I right? coached, coached uh, at Rockland Community not pretty, College. Not pretty. I coached, <laughs> I coached freshman basketball at the high school I went to. I was a hockey coach at Pearl River High School. And then I coached um, high school baseball. And then I coached three years at junior college. And then I got a grad assistant job at Pace. And then I got offered a full-time job with the Mariners halfway through my year at Pace University. I'm glad I got the job offer. My grades weren't as good as they should have been at the time. But uh, no, I've been fortunate, really fortunate, lucky. Uh, I've been, it's my 27th year in pro ball, so um, not bad for a guy that played one year and hit 224 in the minor leagues. <laughs> so that first of those 27 years, will go back 1994, you get that job yeah. uh, as an area scout, scouting the Northeast for the Mariners. You had played baseball, obviously, yeah. but playing baseball and scouting baseball are two completely different yeah. things. Did scouting come naturally to you? Uh, in the beginning, you know, you, you thought about yourself a lot as a player. Like, hey, if I only did this, and maybe I should have done that. It drove me crazy for a couple of years. And then really started getting into it. My job was to find big league players or recommend players to the system that were going to become prospects. First player ever signed, 1994, Mount St. Michael High School, James Rousen. He's now the bench yeah, coach, coach. Of the Miami Marlins. Yeah, yeah. I remember he was in the Yankees out. organization. Yeah, a great kid, and he was a center fielder at Mount St. Michael High School, and we took him in the, I believe, ninth round in 94. So it's a good experience. What did that feel like as a, as a first-time scout to recommend a player and have your, your club great. draft him and sign him? Great. We had guys fly in to see him, and then, you know, the more you do it, the more confident the people that you work under They'll, they'll take a couple of players for you that they don't even see, which is great. And uh, ended up getting our my first big leaguer at a Wilkes University um, in Pennsylvania, Division Three school, Kevin Grabowski. He ended up with the Braves. He was a setup guy for John Smoltz. So uh, the Northeast is a tough place to scout. Uh, the kids are tough. The conditions aren't great. It's a sprint. In Florida, Texas, and Arizona, we call it a marathon because they can play all year round. In the Northeast, you've got a small window, so it's you got to make a decision quick on a lot of these kids. You just have to wind up in Millville, New Jersey, and see Mike Trout on the yeah, right day, right? Did that. Did that um, <laughs> I've been to Millville. That's yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. It's not a glamour yeah, destination. Yeah. Speaking, you know, what's funny about Mike Trout, I was telling one of our younger scouts, I'll never forget it, when we met him, he asked us, he, was, he said, hey, I hope you guys come and see me play. He's a high school kid telling a scouting director and a couple of his cross-checkers, like, hey, I hope you guys come to see me play. I'll never forget that. 
He had a lot of enthusiasm for the game. Real confident at a young age. You, uh, when you think about scouting, is there a specific skill set that you think makes for a better scout, or is it something that you can learn if you put in enough time? I've been around all kinds of people in the game. Um, some really smart guys that pick it up really quick, and it's kind of shocking because you sit there like, hey, I've been doing this for 25-plus years, and, you know, this man or woman picks it up in a pretty quickly. Um, I think the experience of building an encyclopedia of players, like we're in a comparison business, it helps. Hey, we think this kid could be this type of guy. Um, the more players, the better. Um, and being around a lot of people that have been through a lot in the game, just listening in the beginning is a good way to start. Doing a lot of listening, not doing much speaking. You absorb a lot, and um, I was lucky. I, I had some people that I broke in with that were really good at what they did. Roger Youngward was the vice president, scouting director of scouting in Seattle. He was an area scout for the Mets, signed Daryl Strawberry, Lenny Dykstra, Mike Scott, and then he became the scout director of the Mariners, took Ken Griffey Jr., a-Rod, Tino Martinez, and the list goes on and Decent on. resume. He had a good touch. <laughs> yeah, and he was a great guy, and he taught me a lot. What's tougher for an area scout? Evaluating a player's talent and skills on the field, his makeup, his personality? What's the toughest thing to gauge when you're out there watching a, a kid play? I think the makeup, you really have to do your digging on the player. I always encourage kids in high school to play multi-sports because selfishly – we. We wanted to go see them play another sport besides baseball. Hey, how did they compete in basketball? How did they compete in football, soccer, whatever sport it was? That always helped. Um, seeing kids fail, how do they handle failure? Big, because it's a game of failure. And just to see how they bounce back the next day. If it was, you know, I worked for a guy that told me once, hey, the, your top players, see them as much as you can. See them play, see them perform real well, see them struggle, and see them right in the middle. I thought that was good advice. The good ones you should see as much as possible. That, that leads into my next question. Yeah. Listeners to this podcast know yeah. that I am in awe of amateur scouting. I think yeah. it's the hardest thing in baseball because yeah. you're trying to project mm -hmm. 17, 16-year-old kids yeah. into what their body's going to grow into, what their talent's going to turn into, how they're going to handle success and failure. But I think a lot of times, and correct me if I'm wrong, you get two or three days to see a kid – and you have to form an opinion. Yep. And if that kid happens to have two or three bad days, then you may think, oh, that's not a that's not a guy. And turns out you just saw two or three of his bad days. How many games do you need to see an amateur player before you have a real, you know, as concrete of an idea as you can have about what kind of player he is? Sometimes it just takes one game and you just see everything. Um, it, you're at the right park at the right time, right spot, and the player shows you everything. His tools performing and then there's other times where you see a player that your scouts really like and they don't perform for you and my advice to people in the scouting business listen to your people because they know the player better than you do and I made that mistake a few times where I went in and, and I didn't see the player as well as some of our scouts did and it's it's a really good direction to head in to listen to your people because they know the players better than you do. 
you go in, you might have more experience, but they're with them on the ground floor from day one. So they know them. It's important. And it builds continuity. It gives the, the scouts in the field a lot of confidence that the people they're working for trust their opinion. Speaking of mistakes, I read a story yeah. about a guy named Brian Sweeney, yeah. who's now the bullpen coach yeah. for the Indians, and who you were going to draft him. Can you can you tell us that story? Uh, Brian Sweeney, um, one of my favorites. Uh, he ended up signing for $500. I think he pitched in the big leagues for seven years, pitched in Japan, and now he's the bullpen coach of the Cleveland Indians. Um, I remember um, pushing for him in the draft, and... We just didn't have enough room. That's what I was told. That happens sometimes, and you're, you know, you're pushing the envelope, and then you have to stop because it's just not the right thing to do. And he had to go to an independent league um, instead of going out to pro ball. And we ended up signing him out of um, Lafayette in the Heartland League. I don't think the league's in existence anymore. And I remember going into his apartment in Yonkers in New York and signing for five hundred thousand. He told me. Uh, I'm going to make you look good someday. And he did. Is it true that you wanted to draft him and that there was another guy who oh, was drafted? That happens. That Kevin used, Sweeney yeah, out of that Mercyhurst used, you know College. What? That's right. Mercyhurst <laughs> College. That, you know what? I'm glad you reminded me of that. I remember the player, too, because he played in the Cape Cod League. He was a good player. And I remember, because I was back in New York, I wasn't at the draft, and there was some confusion. Uh, that wouldn't happen today with all the technology, but that's a true story. And I remember, you know, the shoulders dropping, saying, wow, this is one of my guys. And uh, it ended up, we finally signed him, and he ended up pitching in the big leagues, which was great. And he's, he's going to be successful, whatever he does. Has that been an easier thing, like you said, with the technology oh, where yeah. – I mean, yeah. I would imagine those mistakes happened a lot oh, back yeah. in the day where oh, you're yeah. going off of yep. lists that you make up and, yeah. and there may be a guy named the same oh, with yeah. the same name and you yeah. think he's drafted and he wasn't. Yeah. That must have been a bit of a confusing... Yeah, uh, it, it, it's, modern technology has really improved the draft. It's, it's a lot easier not to make those kind of mistakes. You know, there, I've been in a plenty of draft rooms where there's been a couple of timeouts called by teams before you picked. And, you know, sometimes the confusion, you know, causes you to call a timeout, which is smart to do if you're not sure. But uh, the technology today, you know, we were used to the magnets and putting them on the board and right. ranking the players. Now it's, it's a lot different. Some teams use the ticker and the electronic data. So um, when I start, I tell the young scouts this, and they can't believe it. I remember 1994 doing the Eastern League. I did it in Penn. No computer. Uh, we had reports where we had three carbons where you wrote it. So that's the East, 30 players on a team in the Eastern League, no cell phone. So when your guys flew in to see your players, you'd have to pull over on a pay phone and call Voice Genesis, 1-800 number, and track your guys and tell them where they got to go. So no phones, no computers for the first three or four years. That was We got it done, but it was a lot more stressful. Probably easier now. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot easier now, but it made you really, really work back then. And we, we figured a way to get it done, but today it's a lot with all the information. I mean, we never had this amount of information, the video, and just the, you know, I don't know how the kids do with the prospects today. You know, they, they read about how great they are, and that's, you know, and they keep a level, most of them keep a level head, which... Not that easy to do at a young age. The draft is an inexact science. We know that right. just from the fact that, you know, the majority of players drafted never get to the big leagues. Right. And even first-rounders, it's probably, what, about 50%. Right. 
when you're scouting a player, what's the number one thing that you look for? I would say the tools, but the makeup's got to be right there with the tools. Um, there's there's some players that you, you know you one I was told by Bill LaJoy, I worked with him in Milwaukee. Bill was the GM of the Tigers when they won the whole thing in '84, I believe. And he used to tell us all the time, one player can make a difference, could can change everything. And he was right. One magnet moving, a, you know, taking one player instead of another. Trust me, I've lived it. Some good, some bad. And you know, sometimes that him telling me that, it, it, I used to tell our guys, one player can change everything. Look at Trout. I mean, look at Lindor. I mean, they're out there. You know what I mean? They change everything. You, uh, you scouted and signed one of those types of players yeah. during your time with Milwaukee. Uh, you're an area scout yeah. starting with 2001 with them, and you signed Prince Fielder. Right. I know you have an encyclopedic knowledge of all the guys you've ever scouted yeah. and signed, yeah. but when you sign a guy like Prince, yep. obviously the bloodlines he had, yeah. what's the key to signing someone like him? Um, Prince, Prince, we started scouting when he was a sophomore in high school. And Prince, I, I would say he had a different body. Um, he, he was unique. And we couldn't get over how good of a hitter he was. He, it's obvious he had power. Anybody could see that he had big power, but he could really hit. And he loved the game. We got to know him, his makeup. He loved baseball. I remember going into their home when I was an area scout and in Melbourne, and Cecil answered the door. and. The kids came out and we sat and talked for an hour and a half. All we talked about was baseball. Showing me his bats. He's telling me about his at bats. He's telling me about the counts, why he went the other way. I'm like, wow, this guy's really advanced and a great kid. And you know, it helped that his dad was a real throwback baseball guy for being a star. And uh, it's unfortunate that Prince isn't still playing. You know, I miss looking at the box scores every morning because he was. Uh, he was great since day one, and it rarely happens like that. I remember when we signed him in Milwaukee, um, we were in Miller Park, and the, his first minor league game was in um, the Pioneer League. And we were watching our big league club, and he homered late in the game to win the game, and they put it up on the board at Miller Park, which was brand new, and the crowd went nuts. And we knew we were building something in Milwaukee. Special kid. I've had scouts tell me that when they sign a player – even if they end up getting traded or released yeah. and they go to another club, yep. they follow that guy. No they, doubt about They watch it. him forever. Oh, no doubt about Somebody's it. described it once, it's like, it's like they're your children. You're, yeah. you know, yep. is, that, is that the case with yeah. you? You've yeah. followed those guys throughout their careers? No doubt. I get texts. I text guys all the time. And I, through the ups and downs, you know, the toughest part is, you know, staying in touch with the guys that are really struggling, that may not get there. Those are the guys that need to hear from you. But when the guys – whether they're traded or whether they get to the big leagues with us, um, I keep in touch with pretty much all of well, – and they're great guys, you know. And, hey, once they sign a pro contract, it's, their career is going to go where it goes. So, um, like, we had Edwin Diaz here, and now he was a Met. So we knew Diaz when he was 16 years old. So we'll, we'll root for him whether he's – wherever he is, you know. Unless he's playing you, of course. Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> no doubt. After your time at the Brewers, you went to the Padres, did a four-year stint there as a pro scout. What are the biggest differences between amateur scouting and pro scouting? Um, good question. The pro scouting, if, if I had to do it again, I would recommend that you start off doing three or four years of pro scouting before you go to an amateur. Because when you're watching 25 teams 
in the summer, and I worked for Kevin Towers, who was an amateur guy from the beginning, became a GM, and he told me that if you ever go back to the amateur side after doing pro work, it'll be a lot easier because you see the prospects and they kind of jump out at you. And even the guys that may not make it, you know why the team took them. It's just not happening. So the bodies, the comparisons, the confidence, the makeup, you get to see them a lot. So it helps build your encyclopedia so when the draft comes, you know, hey, this guy reminds me of that guy, and now, you know, that's pretty much how it works. Which did you like better? I like the amateur stuff better. But I do like the pro stuff too. I mean, it's, you know, every time I go to the ballpark, whether it's um, in Medellin, Colombia, or the Dominican, or Seattle, or New York, or a college game in Florida, same attitude. You know, and hey, let's, you know, you get your juices flowing right when you walk into the park. I hope that never changes. After 2008, you came back to the Mariners as the director of amateur scouting. Right. As a longtime area scout, what did it mean to you to get hired in that capacity? You know, I really didn't have I'm, I didn't really have much time to let it sink in because when we when I got hired, it was work around the clock. Um, it meant a lot, um, and it was it was a great experience. Um, I was living in Florida at the time, and uh, I got a call from Doug Melvin, who was the GM of the Brewers at the time, and he, we were having meetings coming up. Um, a week later, and he said, "Look, we don't want you to come to the meetings." And he said, "Because we got a we got a good feeling you're going to be going to Seattle, and you know it's a scout and directing position, and it's something that you know we think you know we're all behind you." So it was you know he was great, you know. Um, and then I went out there, moved from Florida to Seattle, lived there for eight years, and uh, it's a good experience. Did you at the time, or even now, do you take note of the way that other scouting directors operate? Yeah, there's some guys that I respect a lot to this day um, that just, they're, they're unsung heroes of their organization. I mean, they just, they, they stick to their plan and their process, and they're, they're real professional, and they work really hard. You know who your competition is when you're the scout director because you see certain people at the right games. Um, there, there's, there's a few of them out there that I have a lot of respect for. Is it, I mean, you guys are competitors, but at yeah. the same time, You've, I actually assimilated to beat writers to yeah. some extent where, you know, when I was on the Yankees beat and I was writing for whether it was LNB.com yeah. or the Daily News, yeah. my competitors were the guys in the New York Post and Newsday and the New York yeah. Times, but we all traveled around together. Yeah. We became friends. We'd have yeah. dinner together. So I imagine scouting life being at these, you know, in these yeah. remote locations with, yep. you know, seeing the same, same guys and gals all over the place. Yeah. It must be, there must be a camaraderie there, even though you are competitors. Yeah, there is. Uh, but when the game starts, everyone kind of separates, just like you guys, you know, like, right. yeah, I got to get my work in. But uh, um, yeah, it's everybody knows each other. And, you know, everyone is trying to accomplish the same goal. So you have the best player, you know, with the highest ceiling and who's going to be the best big leader. So um, yeah, pretty much the same as you guys in that department. Like I said before, I'm always in awe of, of amateur scouting in general, it seems like an impossible task to yeah. try to cover every college, every high school, internationally, yeah. whatever it may be. Um, how do you keep track of so many amateurs and make sure that you're not missing someone, like you said, being in the right park? Yeah, you hire good people and you delegate um, the system that Jerry's put in here. It's We have a lot of really smart guys that picked up scouting pretty quick and we have everything covered 
and there usually isn't a, a, a really good player that we don't know about. Um, back in the day, you could hide guys. That was, you know, guys, we call them pop-up guys. So all of a sudden, so once you hear rumors because the technology and the information wasn't like it is today. But it's, it's hiring good people um, that cover the areas. And then you bring in cross-checkers that supervise the area scouts. And then it goes up to the national cross-checkers who see all the top players. They rank the top players. And there's a scouting director. You go around and pretty much see the first-round picks and who you're focusing on taking. And then you report that information to the GM and the assistant GM and the VP of scouting. So... Even being an area scout, if you're in charge of four states, yeah. a lot of high schools in those yeah. four states, a lot of colleges, yeah. a lot of players, has that become easier with technology? Just being able to, you know, reach out to people easier and yeah. you know yeah, not I having think, to get them on the phone necessarily. Yeah, I think the summer showcases and the fall tournaments really help out because the top players are pretty much identified. So as an area scout, you have to get to know them. You have a you have a job to get to know that player because you're with them. You're in the same area. And then, you know, we compare each player from each area. But it's, it's I wouldn't say it's easier, but it's a lot more organized. And it's, it's rare today that someone goes in the top five rounds that you don't know about. Back in the, you know, the mid-19, you know, 1995, 94, I remember hearing guys go off the board like I never heard of them. And the guy was in my area. Right. So, yeah, that doesn't happen too much. Very rarely today. After the fifth round, though, there are still, there oh, are yeah. still players yeah. that get and taken. That, you know, and, and the baseball ops uh, department and the people that are in charge of the statistics target certain players. Like, hey, I went to a small school in New York, Dominican College. It was NAI at the time. And if you see – a stat line where like, hey, this guy's got 100 innings pitched and he's got 150 strikeouts. He's walked five. Somebody from our office is going to send our scout in to see that pitcher. Now, whether or not the scout likes that player or not, you better present a good case because he's right. putting up numbers. That's where the numbers help out. And you got to use them to your advantage. We always use numbers. Even when I started out, I mean, first thing you do when you go to a college game, you used to ask for, hey, you guys got a roster? You got the stat sheet? And you'd look at the numbers, and then you'd scout the players, and that's how it worked. Now it's a lot more, you know, publicized, and everything is right. laid out for you. But you still getting back to the makeup. It's that's the key, the makeup. I mean, there's you remember every kid that you sat and talked with. I mean, I've, I've sat in thousands of homes, and some of the players that are major league all stars that I remember being in their homes talking to them at their colleges, and you walk out of there, you pretty you, you have a feeling on who's who's got the good makeup and who's the one you should be concerned about. Brian Cashman described when he was trying to recruit CeCe Sabathia yeah. that he went to CeCe's house to try to close the deal. He felt like he said he felt like John Calipari going in to, yeah. to try to close a recruit. Yep. This almost sounds like what you do, Yeah. right? You go in like a college yeah. coach trying to – Trying to close a recruit, basically. Yeah, it, the only difference there is um, when you go into someone's home, you're trying to get a feel of how the kid was raised, his parents, his background, his friends, and just how he presents himself and whether or not he loves to play. That's the key. That's the key. Does the, does the player love the game? Because it's a tough game. 
it's a tough sport. There's a lot of ups and downs, and it's that's one of the funnest part of the parts of the jobs. Going to a player's home or visiting a player at college, um, I thousands of them, and it's one of the best parts of the job. You spend- and you bump into people five, ten. 15 years later at a big league park, hey, we know you. Weren't you the guy that came in? Our-? Yeah, so it's one of the best parts of the job. During those eight years as the amateur scouting director, your drafts produced 21 big league players, including some that made a pretty big impact in Seattle, guys yeah. like Kyle Seager, Edwin Diaz, James Paxton. What's it like to see a player that you drafted reach that level, become an all-star? It's a great feeling. I mean, it's, you know, especially when you take the high school players, that's, that's, that's not easy. And, you know, you watch the high school kids become men. And they go through their ups and downs. And when they get there, it's a great feeling. But, yeah, Paxton and Seeger and Taiwan Walker and Diaz, it, those, you know, that, that, those kids are great kids, too. We got to know them. And, you know, it's impossible not to root for guys that you draft. You know, we root. I mean, that's, that's what you do. You know, you want them all to be big leaguers. Unfortunately, they're not all going to be major league players. And then you get surprises sometimes. You take a guy in the 15th round or 25th round and non-drafted free agent in the big leagues. Happens. I know you don't like to think of scouting as luck necessarily. But sometimes there is an element of luck. You went to see Dustin Ackley in North Carolina. And during your trip there, you got your first real look at Seager. Yeah. So how, how much... Does luck or, or good fortune play into it sometimes where you go to see one guy and all of a sudden, yeah. whoa, who's that guy? Yeah, I remember, you know, the famous quote from Branch Rickey, luck is the residue of hard work. I've learned that from the people that taught me the game. Every time we went in to see North Carolina, Seeger just always got his two or three hits. And he played good defense. He, he didn't jump out at you, but he, he, was, he played like a pro. And we just we didn't look back. We just took them in the third round, and we're glad we did. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure you are. Yeah. What What's a draft room like on draft day? Is it chaos? Is it just nervous energy? Is it laser focus? What What is that room like? We all have our images in our head, but you, you never really get to see inside of it. It's not as chaotic as it's been in years past because of the technology and the way things are set up in the draft room and the new rules of the draft too um i thought the last few years um we were ready to go once draft day started and it it being organized and being prepared the two weeks before the draft starts and just putting yourself in position well if this player gets taken here's our three backup plans that happens a lot so um times have changed it used to be a little chaotic because there were no, the slot system wasn't in place. And, you know, you could give a kid $5 million here and a kid $10 million. You know, it was, it was, now it's, you need to know whether or not the player is going to sign pretty much before you take him. So that's how it works. I've, I've sat in press dining rooms with you in spring training yeah. in big league parks. And I know you're a storyteller. Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite draft story? Uh, favorite draft story might be Taiwan Walker. In 2010, we, um, we had our top 30 magnets on our board, and we picked 43 that year because we signed um, Figgins, to a, and we lost our first-round pick. So 
when we got to pick 43, when you're picking 43, you're kind of in no man's land. You don't know what's coming your way. So we set up a board of 1 through 30 magnets. And by the time we got to, type, to um, 43, there were two magnets left on the board. And the team before us was Toronto. They picked 42. And they took the one of the two magnets on the board. So when we picked 43, there was one magnet on our board. It was Taiwan Walker. So it just worked out. I'll never forget that. Because it seemed like... <laughs> You're wow, probably watching each team. one coming off the board. Yeah, and going. And, yeah and we never expected that because we had them, I think, like 16th on our board. So we picked 43. So sometimes you never know. In uh, September of 2016, you were promoted to your current role, special assistant to GM Jerry DePoto. As part of your job, you still scout amateurs. Yep. You do pro scouting. You do international scouting. Uh, what did that promotion mean to you to sort of have some of your responsibilities widened and to be a, a voice that Jerry relies on? It meant a lot. Um, you know, I've been with the organization for a while, and, you know, I'm a helper. That's the way I look at it. If I can help the amateur side, the international side, the pro side, the big league side, and also offer my experience to make to help our people up top make the right decisions. So the variety I like, um, and it's been interesting, you know, one, being in Japan and the Dominican, Panama, Colombia, Mexico, um, and then being at a high school game in Texas and then being – in Arkansas watching our double-A club. So it, it's I think it's good to do a lot of everything because it it, it really helps your perspective, um, you know, what what a big league player looks like. A lot of stamps in your passport. Yeah. Yeah, i got to get mine updated soon. So, yeah. When, uh, when analytics first became a, a prominent thing yeah. for clubs around the league, there was the whole stats versus scouts yeah. debate, and it was one or the other. Yeah. That's no longer the case. Yeah. Every club – uses them all, but were you resistant to a lot of that at first? Or, I mean, I've had a lot of scouts tell me that they were resistant to it at first until they realized that some of these numbers were just backing up what they had been saying right. about a player. Um, how did you first sort of see the the introduction of analytics into the game and how it, how it related to the scouting role? Um, I used it as a tool that, you know, hey, this is going to help make better decisions. Uh, I'm all in. And I remember reading Branch Rickey's Blue Book on baseball. Those guys were those guys were on top of on-base percentage in the 50s. And then watching the movie, I, I've, I have people ask me, hey, did you like the movie Moneyball? I said, I loved it. And they look at me like, you loved Moneyball? I said, yeah, it was a great movie. And you know, it's just information to make the best decisions. Um, you know, we have a variety of different skill sets here in Seattle. We, we have some guys that are turbo smart. And then we have the old scouts, and then we have the new young scouts that kind of combine everything. So it's a good collaboration of a lot of intelligent minds. So when I see a pitcher in college and I write on my report that this guy might have a plus curveball someday, and our people in the baseball ops department that are doing track man or spin rates, they send me an email like, hey, Mac, your grade matches what we're seeing. Makes you feel good. Like, hey, you know, and I know what I'm looking at. Is it harder um, with either smaller colleges or high school players where you don't necessarily have that information? Yeah. You're trying to do the same uh, analysis on a player, but a kid playing in high school somewhere may not have track man information. Yeah. yeah, that's where the scouting comes in. Seeing them in the summer really helps. The summer, especially the guys in the, the colder weather, 
and the, you know the Cape Cod League, and seeing the high school today, the high school players, you get to see them so much in the summer. Your your decisions are pretty much made in the summer and fall. And then you go in the spring and you watch them just to make sure, hey, is this kid what we thought he was? Um, but a, the the showcase, the tournaments, the summer and the fall, it's huge. I mean, you, you as an amateur scout, you you work more in the summer and the fall today than you ever did. There's really no time off. Thanksgiving, Christmas, it's about it. <laughs> yeah. As you've uh, branched out doing more international scouting, What's the toughest part of scouting players internationally? Um, scout the toughest part. It's it's you're projecting kids that are really young, anywhere from 13 to 15, a few 12 year olds here and there. But you have to keep tabs on these guys because you know what? They could be the future stars of another organization. And if you if you're not on top of the players and you don't have the information. It's not good for your organization. So you have to start seeing the guys early. And one thing I've learned about the international side, a lot of kids are they, up and down. I mean, one day they look like future stars, and then the next day it's like, wow, it's not what I saw yesterday, but they're 13, 14, 15 years old. you got to right. think back, hey, remember when you were 13, 14, and 15? So you're projecting a lot. You're rolling the dice sometimes, but... You're looking at twitch, ceiling, um, body language. Even though the 15, 16, 17-year-old kids, I mean, it's it's good competition, and they get after it, and they're advanced compared to how we were in high school. Right. Yeah. It's 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 an experience. You mentioned the competition. That even domestically, you go and see a kid at a high school, and he hits a ball 450 feet. Yeah. But then you're thinking, well. The pitcher who is facing him has nothing. He's right. not very good. Is that a tough thing to judge sometimes where a kid stands out as a big fish in a small pond, but you wonder how he would do in a pool with other big fish? It's a good point. A lot of times you go back to your hotel room and why am I so tired? Because you use your brain so much and you're trying to focus, and that happens a lot. Sometimes it happens. It's actually good for the hitters to see pitchers that aren't, that they're throwing strikes, but they don't have top-end stuff. So you get to see the hitters hit. And then when you see the better pitching, sometimes they expose the better hitters. But you, you just have to watch them nonstop. You know, uh, just a workout, that doesn't cut it anymore. You want to see these kids play in games. You want to see them compete. Can they make adjustments? Do they love playing? Um, can they handle failure? You know, there's a lot that goes into it, but it's it's projection. And when you hit on a player at that young age, it's it takes a while before it clicks in. But when it clicks in, you can get a star. I would imagine the players know when there's a big league scout in the stands, oh, too. Yeah. So yeah. you're also watching them in a situation where they're trying to perform for yeah. you. This is not just them playing in front of their mom and dad and oh, some friends. We were, we were in Colombia a few weeks ago, and it, we, it was a showcase for just the Venezuelan players. So every team was there. Every team was four or five deep in scouts. And these kids, are they know this is my chance. And, you know, you have a workout all day. They go through drills, the 60-yard dash, the 40-yard dash, the BP, the infield, outfield. And then you watch three, three or four days of games. And it's, it's good because you get to see them compete against each other. 
in a stadium in another country, and you sit, sometimes you sit back and say, hey, when I was 13, 14, <laughs> you know, playing this type of baseball in another country, and, you know, hey, this is it. This is it for those players. You know, they know, they know the stakes are high. In uh, December of 2015, you hired Amanda Hopkins as an area scout, made her the first full-time female baseball scout in what is believed to be more than 60 years. Yeah. Uh, did you realize the importance of that hire when you made it? I've seen you quoted as saying, yeah. I didn't look at her as a woman scout, I just looked yeah. at her as a scout. But yeah. there was some, uh, you know, some importance and, and yeah. notability to that hire. She worked in our office, and there were a few times we went to a few games locally, um, and she just, she's a scout. And I knew her father. He was a scouting director for Oakland. He works for Pittsburgh now. And I used to see her in the Cape Cod League tag along with her father. And I remember listening to her in some of the meetings before we hired her as a full-time scout. Her instincts were good. And um, I didn't even really think about the whole, well, we're going to hire. We, we just thought she was a scout. I know that sounds, it sounds you know, it's, we just looked at her like, hey, she's one of us, so let's give her a territory and let's see what she can do. Do you think that could open the door for other oh, young women without, to pursue this career? Without question. And, you know, I grew up with a couple of sisters, and they used to come and see me play in high school and college. They had pretty good instincts on who could play and who couldn't, and who could coach and who couldn't. They, they used to let me know about it. And, you know, three or four years, they were spot on. Yeah. Looking at your your drafts history 2016 you guys drafted Trey Griffey yeah. um, Ken Griffey Jr.'s son yeah. in the 24th round which I'm assuming was not a coincidence yeah. uh, Trey was a wide receiver for the University of Arizona he had not played baseball yeah. since he was a young teen why was that pick important for you guys to make uh, you see a lot of teams especially today they're taking the best athlete at every every chance they can get and we, we, we saw him here and there, bits and pieces, but physically and athletically, we were just like, hey, look, if he ever decides that he wants to play baseball, we're, we have an opportunity waiting for him. That's how we looked at it. And, you know, his father was... Pretty good player for your team. <laughs> I mean, he's a great player. And, you know, and, and, you know he, he pursued football. But, you know, we, we just, hey, it's, he's too good of an athlete to just pass up on and it happens sometimes you take a guy later in the draft and he goes into another sport and he changes his mind and he plays baseball and the rest is history and vice versa with other sports right yeah you uh you've been a scouting lifer yeah do you have any ultimate aspirations in this game a gm or anything like that where you think you're still working towards something or are you a scout for life? Um, you know what? I get asked that a lot. If somebody wants to offer me a GM position, I'd be all ears. That's <laughs> you know, all, all I've done. I, you know Everybody what? out there heard it here. Yeah. If you want Tom to be your GM, yeah. just give um, him a call. You know, most people would sidestep that, and, and, you know, that's the ultimate. When I was an area scout, I went to scout school in Florida, and the guy that ran the program was Don Priest, and it was the Major League Scouting Bureau, and he stood up and he said, if there's somebody in this classroom that doesn't have aspirations to be a scouting director. You're, you're in the wrong profession. And my attitude was, I just want to be a good area scout. That was my attitude. And then after eight to 10 years of doing the job, I was like, you know, I'd like to get to that next level. It's like plan. 
you know, you want to, you know, you do the best you can at your job, but you're always, you always have aspirations to do better. Tom, I appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Appreciate it. You got it. Many thanks to Tom McNamara for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. In our next episode, I'll be joined by Tiger's Vice President of Player Development, Dave Littlefield. We'll discuss his scouting beginnings, his years in Montreal and Miami, his lengthy run as the Pirates General Manager, and much more. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Art19, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about executive access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinstein. Stay safe, everybody. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.